Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. I remember going straight from a shoot once to Heathrow to catch a flight. I think I was going to Vietnam. And I remember stopping in Hong Kong. Anyway, I kept my food styling kit in my bag. I'd just forgotten. I'd forgotten to take it out. And Pete was like, you can't go through with that. Like, there is like so many sharp objects in that thing, but it's worth hundreds <laughs> of quid, right? I was like, and I was young. I was like, I can't afford to ditch it. I'm going to have to risk it. Yeah. I remember going, getting to Hong Kong and the guy just staring at me. <laughs> and he's like, so, sorry, what is this? And I, and this is really naughty. I'm so sorry in advance. But I was like, I'm a doctor. <laughs> Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Food writer Georgina Hayden is on the podcast today. She is author of Taverna and more recently, Mistissima, which translates as Lenten or fasting foods. And the secret to eating delicious plant-based foods is, it's no secret, for over 200 days of the year, Orthodox Christians would essentially eat plant-based. Sometimes it was a form of self-discipline, maybe before Easter or religious practice, sometimes out of frugality and generally tradition. And the dishes were always meant to be vegan rather than a plant-based version of a meat dish. Drawing on history and culture from around the Levantine region, Mediterranean and Eastern Europe, Nistissima is absolutely glorious. The cakes made with olive oil, the light slow-cooked peppers, the sour leeks, the spicy harissa potatoes, they all look and taste amazing without the feeling that you're missing out a central element of the food. No wonder these Mediterranean countries have such healthy older generations. And Georgina herself is a foodie through and through. Growing up in North London in a Greek Cypriot household, she was constantly surrounded by food from a young age. We dive into her career from laying tables at the family's restaurant to the 12 years at Jamie Oliver's and her more recent experience as a judge for Channel 4's latest cooking show, The Great Cookbook Challenge. I watched that show. I thought it was awesome. You can watch our conversation on YouTube as well. It's a great low-cost, no-cost way of supporting the podcast and make sure you subscribe whilst you're there as well. And talking of subscriptions, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free to get access to all of our recipes with specific suggestions tailored to your health needs. New recipes added every month. We have about 400 now and there's also a 14-day free trial too. And in the meantime, particularly Android users, check out Eat, Listen, Read, my newsletter where I send you a recipe to cook as well as some mindfully curated media to help you have a healthier, happier week. Onto my podcast with Georgina. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer. Softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, I, I wanted to find out a bit more about you before we get on to your incredible book. Nist- Am I pronouncing right? Nistissima. Yeah, perfect. Nailed it. So nailed, it. <laughs> I nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> um, tell tell me about how you got into food because, like, I mean, your your family is obviously very food orientated. Did you grow up in North London? Is yeah, that yeah? Is that what you, yeah, yeah, I grew up in North London. So um, my grandparents were still alive. They had a restaurant in Tuttle Park. Um, mm-hmm. So at the time, in the sort of sixties and seventies, all Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots they would they sort of lived around Camden and that part of London real community and both sides of my family had food businesses so my mum's parents had a deli and they used to mm. import um all separate produce and you know back then in the sort of 60s and 70s if you wanted olive oil you'd have to go to a chemist you couldn't get it in really? the supermarket yeah so that bubble that granddad my mum's parents they imported olive oil and olives and halloumi feta all that kind of stuff which, you know, you can get everywhere now. Back then you couldn't. And then my dad's parents had a restaurant for just under 30 years. My mum's parents were older, so they retired just when I was born. So I don't remember the deli. Um, But the restaurant, my dad's parents are younger. So that that was, I was around for like, they didn't retire till I was a teenager. So it was a really big part of our life. Like our life revolved around the restaurant. Like every Christmas, Easter, Saturday, Sunday, we were always there. Um, yeah. and you know they lived upstairs my parents used to live upstairs and yeah it was just like our life you know I joke that my life is like my big fat Greek wedding yeah, yeah. It, it really is like I've married an English guy my family had a restaurant I was forced to go to Greek school like it's I watch that film and I have slight PTSD I'm like yeah I get it <laughs> <laughs> from the ethnic side I get that so hard but um but yeah it was amazing and and you know, it's, it's of, of course, it's you know, that's why I'm. I guess I love food as much as I do. And the gra- that granny, um, she lives down the road to me still, and you know, I still cook with her, which is amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, you can say that's amazing, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah, that sort of cross generational yeah. household. I think it's like it's very common. I think uh, as as part of like an immigrant story. Like you. as you're describing that, I'm thinking about my early childhood yeah. as well, and like our extended family who used to like own stores and live above it. Yes. Like it's just so, it's so typical. Like, <laughs> yes, totally. And I went to really, I grew up in a really sort of diverse part of London. So, uh-huh. um, you know, in, in a way that actually, if you were sort of white British, you're probably a minority, you know? So that's sort of what I say, multi-generational living. 
and lifestyle was just really normal. Like people live with grandparents. There was an auntie somewhere, you know, and I and I love that. And I love that they're still around. So I think it's, you know, it's a real privilege to be able to, you know, learn from elders as well. Like it's it's amazing, you know. Yeah, yeah. My it, it's it's strange. I have a slight connection to North London. Well, my my parents are now based there, but okay. my dad's business was in uh, North London. Okay. So he's been there for like thirty years. Oh, amazing! And I always remember going past like this London Greek radio sign. Yeah, yeah, the massive building, right? LGR, LGR, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah LGR. That's the one. <laughs> I've been on LGR, big fan. Uh, all Greek. Who listen? Grew up listening to LGR. I'm, I'm such a cliche as a kid I was like LGR why do you have to listen to this you know and now yeah. my, I'm like your grandparents are coming over we're listening to LGR my kids are like <laughs> mom I just want to listen to Harry Styles <laughs> yeah it's so funny because my equivalent was um Sunrise Radio yes and it was, it was it was like the worst type of like uh it was like uh it wasn't even FM it was like AM oh. it was all crackly oh, and like yeah yeah it's so bad isn't it and the way it's all produced you're like there's just no fluidity on this situation but you can't change it it's the way it is yeah 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 totally i think one of my dad's first employees um was greek and so when i was like four or five i remember um i'd go into the store his name was zakos i remember him he was like the most greek man ever he had like a mustache he'd always wear like an apron very very strong accent (laughs) he'd always take me to the sweet store across the road and just like and buy me sweets and stuff i remember going to uh, he invited us around to his house and that everyone was there the whole extended family i can't remember exactly what we ate but i remember it was a lot a lot of food loads of food it was incredible (gasps) yeah yeah we are never that is like it's like a fear of like there ever <laughs> being not enough food you know it's a real yeah. thing like I'm up so I'm up north at the moment at my in-laws house and they live in Lancashire and you know they're English and they're lovely and it's so funny like I helped my mother-in-law cook a meal on Monday because all the kids came over and uh she bought this piece of pork for the dinner and I just started panicking I was like it's, it's not enough meat Heather it's, it's just not enough meat you need another joint. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's just not, you need extra. There needs, that is just enough. You know, the idea of there being just enough, like makes you come out in a rash. I'm like, but mm. what if there's not, you know, people always want more. <laughs> That's just yeah, yeah. like, Greeks just have to be. I know it's definitely like, there's, there are lots of cultures like that, but I definitely think it's true of the Cypriots for sure. Like, you know, it's that common thing. The first thing I taught my husband in Greek was the word gani which means enough. Gani. Gani. Ah, yeah. So okay, like you yeah, would go to yeah. both my grandparents' houses and I'd be like, you need to know Gani because they just will keep feeding you. That was like his first <laughs> word. It was like Gani, Gani, you know. <laughs> like just learn that, you'll be fine. That's fair. So when you were growing up uh, in London, would you would you go back home fairly often as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We go back to Cyprus a lot. So um, my immediate family is here, but our entire extended family like I've got way more relatives there than I do in in England um so we go back at you know probably at least once a year um and I I you know I love that and I think then we've said even me and my husband have said there might be a time when we live there for a little bit you know growing up it was just my granny dragging me around churches there was a lot of being dragged around churches but as I've got older like I've loved just exploring the island and getting to understand like why we are the way we are a bit more you know um but yeah I, I love going back you know home or whatever and understanding especially from a food point of view because that's where as a kid it's different right but now as an adult 
my world is food so understanding mm. things like I didn't know growing up that the village my mum's parents were from was famous for rose water so just oh, like wow. you know you get told stuff as a kid but you don't care you know yeah. I don't care um but yeah it's famous for rose water or just stuff like that or like the village my yaya who's still around is from is famous for making halloumi like I mean everyone makes halloumi but it's particularly good so it's just yeah really lovely understanding that sort of because I think food if you understand the food of a country you understand the culture a lot more and I think that's a really obvious but true thing to say for everywhere really isn't it so yeah 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 yeah. I, I, I always say that, I mean, even though like sort of my bias is towards healthy eating and, you know, talking about the, the benefits <laughs> of food and the research behind the ingredients, I think you, you never want to lose that sort of cultural element, that heritage, the celebrational aspects of, of food. It's so, so important. You know, it, you know, how people say it feeds your soul. It literally feeds your soul. You know, it's, it's part of your history. And also for you, I think it's really interesting what I've learned, you know, and I'm not medically trained at all but what I have learned over the last few years I think since having kids and just learning more about food is you know so my, my last my latest book is is vegan but it comes from a um a religious point of view and what I've learned is you know people have asked me are you vegan or why aren't you vegan and what's really interesting is we are all built differently and you will understand that as a doctor more than anyone and so what I've learned about myself and my daughter, one of my daughters, is that she has a blood disorder that is very typical from our part of the world. Mm. So she's got something called G6PD. Um, and I've always battled with anemia. So I was vegetarian for 10 years, but it didn't matter how many lentils I ate or how many supplements I took. My, I, could just ne- I could just never could get my iron to a level mm. where I, I was healthy. You know, I felt okay. Um, and... And, I, you know, as a, t- a teenager in my early 20s, I was upset that I couldn't be vegetarian, but I had to educate myself as to why. Even as a carnivore now, when I'm pregnant, I have to have iron drips just because my iron still crashes. And it's that thing of understanding where you're from to know why you are built the way you are. So when people say to me now, sometimes in maybe an accusational way, just some, sometimes that curiosity, like, why aren't you vegan? I would, I, I'm just really honest. And I say, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm privileged to be a conscientious carnivore. I eat everything. I eat meat in moderation, but I'm lucky that I know where I can get my where I can get my meat from. But at the same time, I have to. I just I can't be healthy. Mm. Like I just don't feel good. And my eldest daughter, we found out she has this blood condition, and it's so interesting. You know, she can't eat broad beans. How random is that? But it's because of where we're from, and I think you have to sort of understand the culture to understand why people eat maybe certain things or a certain way, and not every diet and lifestyle is okay for everyone. You know, like if she was if she was to be vegan at some point in her life, and she if she is, and 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 if she turns that way when she's a teen, it wouldn't. You know, I'll help her, but you know she she has to understand that she's going to have to eat as because she always has anemia, and so it's just really interesting, and I think it's really important to understand your background to be as healthy as possible really yeah i mean that illustrates such a good point about personalized diets and how uniformity in terms of the advice that we give to people like okay everyone should be plant-based or everyone should be omnivorous or whatever you know it just it doesn't make any sense from a from a what we call p4 medicine so predictive personalized it's you know preventative it it 
when I think about the food from Indian culture, just looking at my heritage myself, you know, and you look at our the likelihood of certain genetic SNPs, so they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms, that enables me to be able to extract the most out of things like lentils, because I can, you know, and and certain types of uh, fats from nuts as well, like the omega-3, our conversion is slightly different compared to my Caucasian counterparts who may not be able to extract the same amount from lentils and different nuts. They'll have to get it from things like wild fish, you know, and so it's it's those minutia, the, the the slight differences that are very hard to tease out without looking at swaths of data. And I think what you're describing there is also being a bit more intuitive about how you feel and being led by you know what what's more appropriate for you, particularly at different stages of your life, like pregnancy, postpartum, postmenopause, all these different areas. I mean, it was so different. It's so it's so true, and we are you know, and I think. It was interesting writing that book because I lived and breathed it for a long time and I was eating the food I was cooking. So I was predominantly vegan, but I did end up quite anemic as a result of it. And it's, you know, the idea is that Orthodox countries, because there's such strong faith when they're um, before the big festivals, so before Easter, Christmas, and there's one in August, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, they give up all animal products. So like Maya, who's who does it very strictly, very religiously, she um, she won't eat any any animal products for 50 days before Easter, 50 days before Christmas and two weeks in August, every Wednesday throughout the year and every Friday. If you count up, it's like 200 days a year or more, you know, like there's Coptic Christians in Egypt that is more. So anyway, but that's. It's a really interesting way of living. When I first started writing the book, I just I wanted to write a book which was celebrating vegan recipes from countries that just they just eat that way, not mm. making them vegan. But then as mm. I got into it, I just thought, actually, this is really fascinating because people think of Greek food as very meat heavy, yeah. you know, souvla, gyro, all these things that we know are sort of junky food. But actually, because of the way we eat religiously, if you go to Greece or Cyprus, you can easily eat vegetarian and vegan, very easily, in fact, because they eat that way 200 days a year. It's the other 150 days a year where they eat meat. And that balance is also, it's interesting that now we're trying to replicate that by doing things like Veganuary or Meat Free Monday or, you know, so where maybe religion is less prevalent in our society, in the West, at least, we're now trying to replicate these practices of cultures and communities that are have been doing it for religious reasons. So I come from it from a very unbiased viewpoint in terms of religion. I don't, there's no preaching at all. I don't, it doesn't matter what you do, but it's just interesting, isn't it? Like that's just the way, you know, she will eat lentils and pulses and vegetables for over half of the year. And then the other half of the year she eats a bit of meat and it's just, you know, yeah. It's fascinating. I just think it's really interesting. And, and you know, yeah, that, yeah, 
Yeah, that that balance that you find when you look at sort of traditions, yeah. it, it never fails to amaze me. And that's why, like, I always get all these I told you so's from my family yeah. because it's like, well, I told you fermented <laughs> food was good for you. I told you that turmeric was great. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, you exactly. know yeah, I said yeah. that you should have your lentils and your rice and all these different yeah. uh, ingredients. So you get all your nutrients and you eat the rainbow and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, like, you know, we're really standing on the shoulders of, uh, tens of thousands of of uh, 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 years of just like tweaking, yeah, you know, totally, <laughs> changing totally. things and being a lot more intuitive. Yeah. You know, we're like, so, guys, we've discovered this thing. <laughs> we're so clever because we figured out if you eat this way or you eat these things, you'll feel really great. And our ancestors are like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you just discovered it. You know, but it, it's yeah, it's so funny. I'm like, oh, the penny's just dropped yeah you eat eat a plant-based diet and you feel really good but then occasionally you might eat a bit of meat oh that's interesting (laughs) so georgia tell tell me a bit about your experience in um in in kitchens when you're when you're growing up you know with with your family and 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 what what was what was that i've got this image of you like you know being roped into the kitchen and roped into the you know the restaurant and you know uh, doing weekends and all that kind of stuff well we we were quite my our kitchen was like you know, it was something out of like a comedy. My gran and granddad would be shouting at each other in Greek. There was a lot of, it was very fiery, very tempestuous. Me and my sister were never really trusted with very much. Um, we were allowed to fill the salt and pepper shakers or put the p- paper tablecloths on the tables. Um, my sister, there was a, I don't remember this. I think I must have been too little. But do you remember Shaken Back? Do you remember that stuff? Sh- oh yeah, I remember that. Shaken back. Yeah, so yeah. We yeah. were in the restaurant, and there was the restaurant part. Of it must have been carpet. It was, it was carpeted part of it. You'd never have that now, really. But I mean, you know, no. what I mean, like that's you know, <laughs> so it was carpeted. And my sister was getting the salt shaker. She's older than me. She's four years older than me, and she's really cheeky. And she was going around the restaurant, going, "You do the shaken back with the salt." <laughs> anyway, my AR is quite a character. She's very fiery. She's brilliant. She came out and she started shouting at Lulu, going, "I." what are you doing blood there's salt all over the floor and pat i think just because i was so used to being like you know her her dog's body i just apparently went it was me (laughs) (laughs) and my ai was just like sorry what and my sister was sat there with a smile on her face and she's like i know you did it i know it so we weren't really trusted with very much we were always getting in the way but um it never to be rubbed off and then you know like just watching my ai cook all the time and then as a teenager, it was really funny. I think because food was such a big part of our life and it was so ingrained, I didn't really think that that's what I should do for a living. I just thought everyone was obsessed with food. So when, you know, you're at school and they're like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I was vaguely, I was, I was academic and I didn't go to a great school. I just went to a raised standard sort of state comp. And I was quite academic and they were like, you know, you should do more academic stuff, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, yeah. They're like, you could do something creative, history of art, fine art. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I used to have a farmer's market stall in North London, making cakes and breads and salads at the age of like 18. It still didn't cross my mind that I should probably work with food. I was like, yeah, yeah, university. So it wasn't until I went to university that even after having a farmer's market stall in this family restaurant that I was at uni and all these girls around me were reading Grazia and Hello and all those, you know, okay or whatever. And I was just binge reading Delicious. Delicious had just come to the UK 
and because it's Australian, right? And uh-huh. I it had just come to the UK and I was just sat there in my final year at uni and I was like, I should I should probably do something about this. So I wrote to them. I said, can I come and do work experience? They said, yes. You know, nowadays it would be like a wait list, I'm sure. And I, and I went on my first photo shoot and I, I just had this real epiphany that I was like, this is what I should be doing. It's, I've got this creative side to me, but I love food. And there are people that write recipes and cook them for photography and telly. And that was it. I was just like hook, line, sinker. You know, I, I was obsessed. And I was like, that's, that's the career for me. I just, you know, I knew that's it. Immense. It took a while, you know, it clearly took a while for me to get there. But I think when something's so almost so obvious and such a big part of your life maybe you don't see it you know mm, yeah but yeah food was so important to us but i just thought it was the same for everyone and it okay I mean, you know, maybe it isn't maybe they're not as obsessed they're sitting there reading magazines i think but i think people that listen to your podcast probably are the same as us yeah, no, there definitely are. I mean, I, we did a poll recently of um, uh, people's sort of culinary confidence in the kitchen and how experimental they are. And they definitely lean more towards the sort of like foodie spectrum of like, you know, I, I want to uh, learn new things. I, I, I'm, you know, probably a subscriber to a bunch of these magazines like Olive and Delicious and Bon Appetit and all that kind of stuff. So definitely that well, with a sort of health slant uh, to it as well. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little I mean, I like healthy that. foodie tribe. It's so good that it's become so much more sort of commonplace. Back then, so I started in the sort of food styling world when I was, so it must be 17 years ago, you know, and if I said to people back then, you know, I'm, I'm a food stylist, or I'm an assistant food stylist, they would say, you know, what's that? And I, oh, I remember being single and going into bars, you know, you'd meet a guy and be chatting. If I wasn't particularly interested, I would lie. I would say, oh, I'm a teacher or I'm a student because I couldn't be bothered to have to explain <laughs> <laughs> what a food style. I was like, oh gosh, I'm bored already. You know, so uh, whereas I think nowadays, especially people that are food focused, you know, most people know, they, I think they understand the industry a lot more. So it's a yeah. different place. But back then it was like, you know, what you use mashed potato for ice cream, you know, stuff like that. You use mashed potato and, you know. Stuff like that. So. Yeah, oh, I suppose, I guess uh, the show that you were a part of as well as one of the judges, yeah. um, you know, really opened a lot of people's eyes as to, you know, how a book is actually yeah. created. I remember a lot of people who, uh, they reached out to me afterwards and they were like, oh, so that's what you do when you do a book. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, man, it's a whole thing. I'm like the least yeah. important person there. There's like the stylist, the prop stylist, the yep. photographers, the editors, stylists, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah no, I, I guess that shed even more light on that. Yeah, right? I think it's really good as well because obviously, you know, cookbooks in terms of published, uh, you know, the pub- publishing, publishing industry, they're expensive, you know, to purchase a cookbook on the whole, unless you get a deal or whatever, you know, at full price, a cookbook's more expensive than, a, you know, fiction or, you know, any sort of literature. And it's because there's so much involved, right? The author, like you say, I mean, of course, you're the most important bit, but, you know, you're only one part of a team, you know, you've got the photographers, the designers, the stylists, you know, and it's such a collaboration and it's so fun as well. Like we were saying before, it can be quite isolating in our industry. You don't get to sort of collaborate especially writing a book you know you're often at home on your own or in the kitchen on your own so when you get to the the making of the book stage it's so nice because you're there as a team and the team hopefully believe in you and want to create something beautiful so it's so nice and I know you had amazing David with you as well and you get great people like that it's really inspiring um but yeah I, I think the show sort of helps as well and I just think we're all a bit more 
you know, people like seeing whatever it is, people like seeing behind the scenes of things, I think now. I think in back in the day, especially with food styling, it was very much, um, so, so basically when I left uni, I went back to Delicious for a year and I worked at Delicious and Sainsbury's magazine. They were all one publishing house at the time. And I was there for a year and it was at, when I was on a shoot for Sainsbury's that I met Jamie Oliver's head food stylist and she's still with him, she's amazing. Um, and they poached me. So I ended up working with Jamie for 12 years and doing all his telly or his books and all that stuff, which was amazing. Um, but, you know, it, it changed so much by the time I left and even now. And I think because of social media, we like to sort of flip the camera around. We like to see how things are made. You know, back then there was such a and Jamie was not like this at all. But generally, the idea of perfection in photography and and, you know, I mean, ads on telly are still quite mental. They're probably they were probably my least favorite thing to do just because of the it's just it's quite mad like yeah. what goes into you know the, the supermarket christmas ads i won't li- name supermarkets but you know <laughs> those 15 second ads that we all love and you know drool over at christmas they take about a week if not longer yeah. <laughs> to film it's mental yeah you know i remember once going and your food styling kit for those situations is like a doctor's kit it was yeah. a range of tweezers razor blades syringes and i remember going straight from a shoot once to heathrow to catch a flight i think i was going to vietnam and i remember stopping in hong kong anyway i kept my food styling kit in my bag i'd just forgotten <laughs> i'd forgotten to take it out and pete was like you can't go through with that like there is, there is like so many sharp objects in that thing but it's worth hundreds <laughs> of quid right i was like and i was young i was like, i can't afford to ditch it i'm gonna have to risk it yeah, I remember going, getting to Hong Kong and the guy just staring at me <laughs> and he's like, so, sorry, what is this? And I, this is really naughty. I'm so sorry in advance. But I was like, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm, I'm a doctor. I, I don't, know, I don't so know what to tell good. you. I love that. And That's he just looked brilliant. at me and was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, you know what? You, ha- you had to do what you had to do in that situation. Nobody got harmed. I can't, man. That cost me such a lot of money. And I was such a, I was a kid and I was like, I can't afford to throw all these tweezers and stuff away. I think I did have to ditch the laser blades, but that's fine. But you know. That's brilliant. I love that story. That's sorry. awesome. <laughs> and so 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 you work for for jamie for you must have learned so much oh, yeah. um at that, at that hq working with all those like incredibly creative people and 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 jay himself um and and then then did you make a conscious decision to go out on your own and and do your first sort of books and and, and create your own brand and yeah i um i left jamie's i'd already written my first book and i knew i had a two book deal so i knew i was writing the second one and it coincided with me having my eldest daughter. And I was just like, and he knew, like, and I'd been honest with him. I was like, you know, once Persephone comes along and whatever. And he was so, he's always been so supportive and he still is. He's such a great mentor. Um, so I was like, I need to go on my own now. You know, I've got the security blanket of having one book under my belt. I know I've got another one to write. It was still very scary. You know, the idea of being freelance, I was petrified, but you know, I did it. And like I said, he's always been really supportive. And and also what an education, you know, like working with him for 12 years and then meeting people like Antonio Carluccio and Gennaro and working with such an amazing range of people like Anna Jones was, um, we were there at the same time. So when 
we filmed in LA, like Anna and I had a flat together, you know, met so many cool people and had such a nice time. But I think it was the right time to go solo and sort of work. Yeah, just build up my own stuff, really. Um, I don't think I've ever, I don't think, especially back then, I don't think I was particularly like maybe as savvy, <laughs> you know, like I'm not, I'm always sort of just treading water a bit. But my dream has always just been to write books. So um, like even the telly stuff, I I didn't do telly for ages because I was like, I don't want to do it. I, I don't, I wasn't particularly very confident, I think. I just thought, everyone would say to me, you're very chatty, you'd be good on TV. And I was like, no, I don't, I'm not, look at me, I'm not TV worthy. And I- Oh, don't be no, silly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, especially in your 20s, as a, as a woman, and, and you know, I didn't see anyone like me. I was like, no, 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 no. The only women on telly were like Delia and Nigella. And I was like, well, I'm clearly gotcha. neither of those. Mm. And I think mm. it's, you know, it really helps to, to have people to look to. So I didn't do telly until Taverna came out and I did a bit of Saturday morning telly, like Saturday Kitchen and Sunday Brunch. And I was like, actually, I really enjoy it. Like, it's just really nice. And I think having a range of voices is just really important, isn't it? Like whether that's from a, um, a sex point of view or ethnicity point of view or, or a class, whatever it is, I think it's just really good to have a range. And I just, I feel really passionate about that. And I really enjoy telly. I actually really like live telly. Do you agree? Yeah, I know. It's so weird. It? I was going to say that actually, like uh, people always uh, like, they, they message me after they see me like doing ITV or whatever. And they're like, how do you do that? Like, how, aren't you nervous? Do you not get like scared? Yeah. I'm like, actually, no, I really enjoy it. Yeah. I, I love the thrill of like having those seven minutes. Yeah. And someone in your ear saying you're halfway through. Oh, and then like, you know, you get thrown around and questioned by the presenters. And you're like, it's all right, I've got this, you know, and you've got your pans going in your, it, it's kind of a bit like, you know, rubbing your tummy and patting your head yeah. at the same time when you're, when you're cooking live telly. Yeah. But when, once it's you get used to it, yeah. it becomes really enjoyable. And, and I see that in, in you, because I was fortunate enough to have my first, set the kitchen appearance yeah. with you yeah and you I, I you must have done it a, a bunch of times because you were like I looked at you I was like okay yeah she, she's got this I, I've got to get to that level <laughs> you know what I, it's, I think I've done it a couple of times and it it's no it is no I think Saturday Kitchen it, it, I probably get out of all of them it's probably one I get most nervous from because it's it's also you're on for the whole show so you, you yeah. know, you can't have a resting bee face. You can't be yeah, like, yeah. you know, you've got to be switched on. And um, whereas, you know, like the other ones, you like to say you get seven minutes, but it's, it is, it's fun. And you know, you, you, you see that clearly, like you're so good, but it is, there's something like in terms of pre-record stuff, like doing the show with Jamie was amazing, but very different, you know, 18 hour days, lots of doing the same thing again. Whereas live telly, like, I just think, especially if you work in a kitchen, it sort of appeals to the nature of those people because we often tend to be people that maybe like doing things ad hoc and not being so scripted. So it's really, it's really fun. I do like it. And just stuff like this is good, isn't it? It's lovely. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, th I think like uh, having a range and I think one of the great things about being a creator, a cookbook author is you get the chance to dip your toe in a whole bunch of different arenas, whether that's live TV, pre-record, podcast, long-form conversation, all that kind of stuff, which I love because I I'm sort of that person that needs like constant um, uh, inspiration from various yeah. sources and like, you know, just, just variety basically. Yeah, um, but I, I wanted to talk a bit more about Nistissima because you've got some beautiful photography uh, in it and actual like, 
uh, scenes from the, the places that have like been your inspiration for the food. And I remember you saying something about how you had, it was at your launch event, how you had like all these like priests and stuff on like a WhatsApp group. Yeah. What, so t- tell me a bit about that. that. That's awesome. Oh, honestly, because I wrote it. I got the book deal before the pandemic and I, <laughs> and I, and I was pregnant and then the pandemic hit and I was like, well, this is going to be interesting to write this book. And, you know, so just Nistissima, basically, before Nistissima, I wrote Taverna. Now, Taverna is all about my grandparents' restaurant. It's about Greek Cypriot food. It was a real, it was really autobiographical. It was very easy to write. And we got to go to Cyprus and it was lovely. But when I was, um, just to give Nistissima a backstory, but when I was doing all the publicity around Taverna, because of the way society is now wanting to eat more plant-based stuff, the question I kept getting was, are there vegetarian and vegan recipes in the book? And actually there's loads in Taverna. And it often then led to this spiel that I would give saying, well, actually a lot of people don't know that Greek and Cypriot food is very vegan because of religion. And I kept saying this and I just turned to my publisher. I was like, listen, it's getting ludicrous now. Like people keep asking me, I feel like I need to write this. So she was like, do it. So I was like, yeah, I will. And, um, <laughs> and the timing was terrible. And, uh, and, I, and I got a grant from the Guild of Food Writers. I got generously given this grant to go and travel. Yes, and anyway, obviously yeah. I couldn't. And so I was like, <laughs> so how am I gonna write this during a pandemic pregnant with a toddler? And I just had to, um, well, I worked my ass off and I just had to reach out wherever I could. Um, so I made lots, any connections. I did shouts outs on social media. I asked friends, I asked relatives. And through all these connections, I found various people. So um, a friend of my sister's, they're very religious and they even visit a very beautiful monastery in Lebanon. They gave me the details of this monk, this priest there who um, has kindly been conversing with me on WhatsApp. So Father Augustine, shout out, what a legend. And (laughs) I've got a recipe inspired by him in the book. And then, so the epicenter of sort of Orthodox faith is a place called Mount Athos. You should totally go because women aren't allowed, right? And it, really? Yeah, it drives me mental. But it's oh, quite, you know, honestly, in part of your, at some point in your life, in part of your research or studies, you should go. It's, it's called Mount Athos. And there are hundreds of monks and priests that live there. And they're completely self-sufficient, pr- pretty much. And you can only access it by boat. And it's really incredible. Like, it's really, if you Google it, like, it's quite remarkable. And anyway, they obviously, this is their diet. And there's a lot to be said about the diet of the Mount Athos monks. Um, so I was, e- I basically just emailed all of the, all of the churches there. I was like, guys, right. I'm Greek. So I'm writing about who's going to help me. Um, and then, so I was conversing with a couple of the monks there in Greek. And then I think I said this to you and I said this at the book launch, but it was really funny. There was this one priest, this one monk I was trying to chat to. And, uh, and I, at the time I had a very tiny newborn baby and this toddler and, you know, my timing's all over the place and I was trying to pin him down. And I was like, right, can you do this days, these times? Because I know I've got help. Any of these work for you? My, this is like Tuesday, nine o'clock, Thursday, 10 o'clock. He was like, by the grace of God, we will speak. I was like, <laughs> babes, <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you there. However, <laughs> this is my eye calendar. 
<laughs> we, ne- we never spoke on the phone put it that way oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but it was you know it was amazing and then and then you know through social media I met some really amazing um mostly women actually like sharing their grandmother's stories with me and whatnot and initially it started with Greece and Cyprus but I didn't want it just to be Greek Cypriot because the orthodox faith goes far and wide so we we went to the Mid- you know Middle East and then sort of Eastern Europe so topically Russia Ukraine and then you know Serbia and any of the countries that connected and yeah it was amazing so I just had to do what I did as as creatively as I could and it was right at the end the book was about to go to print and they just lifted restrictions and literally I think we were two weeks on print day and I said guys look I have to use some of this money so all the photos in the book that are in church are an orthodox church in London so we have an amazing church locally very beautiful father John who whenever I put him on Instagram I don't mean to be crude, but a lot of people go quite gaga for him, bless him. <laughs> and, um, and then we managed to get to Cyprus right at the last minute. And I said, please, please just hold print for a couple of weeks. And I went to this amazing convent, um, which is famous for being self-sufficient and spoke to these nuns. And to the last recipe in the book, it very sort of appropriately, because it was the last thing that we shot and the last thing that I wrote was inspired by the nuns. And it's very simple. It's just how to make your own cordial, you know, it's, yeah it's just very every day but really simple so yeah there there is this picture that i'm trying to find that's in this like monish it looks like i think it'll be sort of towards the introduction gotcha yeah yeah i remember coming across it i was like it just looks so beautiful it was yeah there you go there's like these images here if you're if you're watching on youtube you'll be able to see it but it's um it's it's wonderful and i i think definitely for the for the next book or books that you do, uh, more of those sort of images would be wonderful. I know. And I also noticed on the um, on the inside, you've got all the different countries. Yes. That, and I was yeah, I was surprised to see like Slovakia, Serbia, yeah. uh, Russia, Ukraine here. Like so, this yeah. sort of influence of the is it Coptic Christian? Well, Orthodox. Is that the or- Orthodox yeah. Orthodox Christian? The, the, this sort of practice of. 50 days before Christmas or 50 days before uh, Easter. I'm assuming this is sort of across all those regions. So all the different food inspirations is not just Greek Cypriot or or, or it's it's a whole bunch of different cultures that you include in this. It was really important to me to include all of those because whilst obviously Greek Greek food is my centre, it's actually these are, and the thing is when I first started looking, like I got messages from, uh, I got messages from a woman in Kerala who was like, we're orthodox wow. over here. And I was like, listen, it is killing me because I would love, <laughs> love, maybe that's book four or five. I would yeah. love your orthodox Carolyn recipes. How incredible would they be? Amazing. But, um, I felt like I had to streamline it somewhat in terms of geography. And it's sort mm. of that those countries felt natural because they're all neighboring countries. And, you know, and also as is the way with food, there's a real, there's a real journey. So things like moussaka, Whilst, you know, we over here, I think people associate moussaka as a Greek recipe. We, you can picture it. You know what I'm talking about. You know, all over the Middle East and even Eastern Europe, they have different versions of moussaka. So it's good magmor in, in the Middle East. And then even if you go to like Serbia, and they have their own versions. So it's, it's really, it's interesting. All stuffed vine leaves, you know, Turkey, Dolma, Greece, Dolmavis, we call them Gobebia. And in every country, it'll be a different protein or it'll be a different spice blend. And it's just that sort of, you know, and I, I never get into arguments about these things because how can you pinpoint? I mean, there will be some things, of course, you can, but I think recipes like that, as with our sort of, as with people, they travel. 
you know, and it's just so interesting seeing the transition, the change of how these recipes, you know, change over the over the countries and the influences. So, um, like, I love the fact that in Eastern Europe, a lot of the the what we call gulbebia, the vine leaves, will be like fermented cabbage leaves, or yeah, especially in places like Ukraine and Olia, Hercules writes about this. You know, the bleak winters, they have to make do with what they can, and they use the fermented cabbage leaves, whatever. So it's just really interesting and so it was important to me to sort of look at all those countries really um, yeah and then get the stories from different people i think that's the other thing that's really important if you're writing about other people's food especially i think now what we're sort of seeing in the food world is it's really important to do your research to speak to people themselves not just to go on google or read something you have to really do your due diligence and i think that's really important so I was gutted I couldn't travel more than I did, but it did make researching the book really funny. And I think just to that point, actually, about um, cultural heritage and, and f- as recipe writers, I know for me, in particular i write recipes from a from a mixture of different cultures one of the sort of um challenges that i i love to to sort of entertain and and, and rise to is making healthy food applicable to the very diverse population of london right so i'll have korean people come into my my clinic sri lankan uh different parts of africa you know just just everywhere and like they tell me their recipes yeah and i rewrite it back to them yeah with like healthier twists turning up this turning down that etc yeah. etc et but i think this whole concept of ensuring that we are being respectful yeah of uh people's cultural heritage particularly in in books is is it's very topical but yeah. it's super super important totally. how do you for, for any people who are writing recipes out there how how do you feel this is um uh, a subject to sort of to to tackle like what 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 are the sort of key things that people should should really be looking at you you mentioned yeah. one of them which is obviously go go to the source as much as possible and i think that's the thing you know it's a hard one i've been i've been asked this when the tv show came out there was um one publication that asked me you know can english or, or caucasian people write about other countries you know other communities and other other foods ethnicities foods and I and and yes they can of course they can and equally someone from you know um an Indian food writer can write about Italian food that's not to say you only can write about the food of your country because also it's not that I mean that that's boring right like people travel like we say it's interesting it's ideas and that's the beauty of food but I think there are some writers who just do it so well like if you're going to write about you know if you're going to really write about another country or another culture you have to submerge yourself in that culture as much as you can and you have to be authentic so and I don't just mean I mean travel of course but also talking to people you know being educated on stuff like that and I think that's really important eating a wide range of foods not just writing I I don't I mean of course this happens but not just writing a recipe because you've seen it somewhere and you're going to copy it. As a, as a book writer, I think that's really important. I think when you're a magazine writer and you're given a brief, and they're two very different things. So people that write about books, you have such a responsibility on your hands, I think, to do a good job and to tell the story well. Because 
there will if you have the privilege of writing a book there are always people behind you that don't have that privilege who might have a better voice or a more educated voice so if you have that privilege you have to do a good job of it I think the difference is things like magazines because when you work on a magazine or your magazine recipe writer you are asked to write a really wide range so I appreciate that you can't always travel or whatever but you just have to be really educated and I think the good thing with social media is um, we can now interact and follow people cooking and talk about different cultures and stuff. And I think just if you are doing that, just, you know, don't be, don't be stupid. Yeah. Yeah. It's basic, but just don't, don't be stupid. If you are going to go there, like do your, do your homework really, yeah. you know, yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think it's as basic as that. And if you're going to go to the extent of writing a book about it, then by all means you need to be paying your dues but like I say that is any any I do firmly believe that anyone can write about anything and I think that swings both ways because I think there's backlashes from both ways I think we can all write about what we want but you just have to make sure you do the research because I you know I want to write about Italian food or Indian food or you know Southeast Asian food like I love those kind of foods like my weakness is Indian food like if I was never able to write about that again it would kill me because I whilst my books my last two books are sort of greek and middle and mediterranean i've been trained to cook from all these sorts of cuisine so you know but i just think it's about being respectful yeah i i can so see your next book being going to kerala honestly oh like I, <laughs> I would love uh, that i would absolutely love when to read that. that lovely lady reached out i, I it's like someone stabbed me I, like, I knew i couldn't <laughs> you know like it would be too random from that point we'd figured out that we were sort of specializing on eastern med and, and middle east and i was yeah. like but come on <laughs> but the thing is of course i don't you know it, it would be amazing cuisine but at the same time you, as you know you know like indian especially in the south like there's not masses of meat any you know like it's sort of it wouldn't yeah. be hard yeah, like yeah, about yeah. All that fabulous food, really, would it? Yeah, like, yeah, no. To, I mean, like, I think it's something like thirty percent of the population, which is like a billion people, are vegetarian yeah. uh, or vegan. So you know, th the wealth of variety that you have across the entire country yeah. is just amazing. Um, I I wanted to do maybe maybe not a book, but like um a, a series on YouTube or something where I literally go from. The top of the country, Punjab, which is basically where my my heritage is from, yep. and just traveling all the way down, meeting various sort of food writers and researchers along the way, and then just sort of speaking to scientists yes. uh, from both the conventional and the Ayurvedic traditional medicine. Because in, in India, I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but like uh, the conventional and uh, complementary medicine sort of sit side by side, and they're both both government state funded as yeah, well. Which is amazing. So there's a, yeah, it's incredible. Thank which you. is this beautiful like amalgamation of of both sort of sides yeah. with, with equal respect and i think that's something we, we we sort of i think we're coming around to it here but slow we're, though we've definitely yeah we're, we're definitely slow for yeah that sort of appreciation on, on both sides so i'd love to do a series like Aww. where we do that and then we also like cook the food as well Ruby, and, you, you know, have we, to we do it that, i'd love to do that that yeah. would be so amazing <laughs> and if i could just come to Kerala and, and chat to this woman and chat to you that the end of that episode that'd be amazing i'll be there but that like that is i would so watch that that to me and i don't think i mean biased because i i love the you know the food and the culture in the country but that would be fascinating like how cool would that be it'd be such a good thing to watch and also you're so right about medicine i i you know i'm lucky enough i've been to India a few times and i do find that fascinating fascination you know like 
the way they do combine both you know the medicine I think over here we're so we're so like western medicine and that's all anyway I mean that's another whole big conversation but I totally agree like I'm having issues with my littlest one at the moment with her eczema and all the every specialist I've seen every doctor just wants to put her on steroids I'm like she's a baby you know and it's like actually come on guys let's think about this let's what do we know about gut and things and, and and okay you know anyway boring but that's my point like there's always more to it and I think people other cultures are so much better at questioning seeing the bigger picture than sometimes we are i think we just want to put a plaster on it yeah yes that steroid cream will help her but but there must be a reason you know anyway but yeah yeah no that's it's it's definitely not boring and and this is certainly the audience and i I know (laughs) people are dying out for sort of uh i'm not asking for medical uh, advice i'm not asking for advice no no no, of course not no no no. but yeah, yeah like as a parent as well i'm like come on like she's her wrists and stuff are bleeding like I, I know the steroid cream works because I've been in a position where I've had to use it, but there is more to this. I know this. It's my it's my job. Like I know there'll be things that'll be triggering her. But it's so black and white. It's like they do the tests and they're like, well, she's not allergic to peanut. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But and I've learned just through doing what I do and understanding about my food, I've learned that tomatoes trigger her. Because mm. they're acidic, you know, like I know. Mm but they don't tell you because it's all very black and white isn't it so yeah 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 it can be and i think there's definitely like that way of um taking uh, a, a holistic approach while still appreciating that in the in the first instance yes okay we're gonna dampen down the inflammation use steroids use systemic stories sometimes if we need to if it's really bad but we're also going to try and investigate the underlying cause whether that's a food trigger by doing food diaries looking at the family history you know the things things like mode of birth and exposures the exposure is a really really big topic we're actually going to be talking about on the podcast uh, hopefully soon okay. uh, about air quality in general but it. also other yeah oh, no. other well i mean it's tough isn't it because like oh. it's a scary topic but no one's really talking about it yeah. other than in the context of like ULEZ, yeah, which, yeah. which just pisses people off, understandably. But at the same time, it's like the WHO levels for air pollution yeah. are exceeded three times over in London alone. Yeah, right? I, yeah. No one's really talking about that. And we should really, yeah. given that we know what these pollutants can be capable of. Yeah. Um, and it's not just like scary things like cancer. It's like yeah. other things like asthma, asthma. respiratory conditions yeah. and inflammation in general. So yeah, it's it, it's definitely a topic. But in, in terms of childhood eczema, it's a growing issue. And um, we actually tackled this in a topic with a, a colleague of mine who's looking at other ways of um, exposing kids. It's more in the context of um, uh, allergens but exposing, putting in micro exposures and then like increasing it uh, over time. They were doing that at Great Ormond Street, weren't they? Because my husband's allergic to peanuts and stuff. And they were saying that with kids, they're giving them very tiny dosages. You know, it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence that we went to, we were traveling around the Greek islands in the summer and her eczema went. Oh, absolutely. You know, like I just, I don't think that's, anyway, so you're completely right. I don't think that's, you know, just a coincidence. But yeah yeah, yeah. Really- we, we can ch- we can definitely chat about that oh um, yeah. as well and no no for sure for sure and i, I like uh, people yeah. uh they on my newsletter uh, people request podcast topics all the time and we have like this massive long list of things that we need to approach like we, we've done quite a bit on uh, menopause at the moment but we have things like osteoporosis we have dementia uh, eczema is definitely up there, childhood eczema. I, we've done adult eczema and we've actually done a, a really good podcast with Dr. Ruth Kamish, who um, who talked about uh, steroid overuse syndrome. 
um, she, she's re really, really good. And someone I, I always recommend people to actually, cause she's a, a patient herself. And I think that makes the, the best doctor. Yeah. Cause you understand that in coming from, I'll have to listen to that one. It is, it's just really interesting, but I think, you know, we, it's good that we are starting to have these conversations and, but I think, yeah, we need to, you know, especially like to generationally, like people like my parents or my in-laws, you know, they go to the doctor and it's very, it's verbatim, like what they say, like that's, it's what you do. Like they wouldn't think outside. I remember when my other granny, bless her, God rest her soul, she, um, I was in my twenties and she suffered terribly of arthritis bless her but she was very stoic and she would never moan ever 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 and there wasn't much that could be done in terms of her pain and just to sort of help her um and she would just hobble around and she would never moan and I'd said to her a few times go to an acupuncturist I've got this lovely guy let me take you let me take you anyway one day she never complained she just turned to me she said I think I'd like to try she was obviously so desperate and you know this is a an 80 year old Greek Cypriot immigrant that is quite out there for her, you know, acupuncture. And she went and she did the six sessions and, and, and genuinely a few years later, she said, I think we need to go back. And that to me said everything. It helped her in a way that nothing the GP had given her had helped her. And, and that, that says everything, you know, and I just think it's so, it's so interesting. And actually the only reason even my family were doing acupuncture was because we were lucky enough to have this brilliant Indian doctor growing up. And my mum, he used to do acupuncture with my mum, the GP. Really? That's yeah. so good. Yeah, I was like eight or nine. And I remember being in the GP's wait the room with my mum and him putting needles in her. You know, and that's in like the late 80s, probably early 90s. And I just think, what? You know, at the time I was like, cool. But now I'm like, great. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Why legend? <laughs> yeah. Like brilliant that he did that, you know. And so yeah, it's 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 just changing. I think people's attitudes and perceptions. You know, you you you'll you'll have the right audience because they're interested. Because and that's why they listen. But it's the people that aren't. You know, the ones that like my mother-in-law who were desperately trying to get high acupuncture and you know, come on, it can help. Yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah, and you can find it's a bit of a postcode lottery at the moment because you can find acupuncture in some NHS surgeries that are covered by the NHS. Um, but someone, someone who's really spearheaded this uh, is Dr. Michael Dixon. He's got a surgery down in Devon, um, but he's really influential. He, he, he's he got sort of connections with, with the Royals and stuff. And obviously Prince Charles is quite into a lot of this stuff. Um, but uh, he managed to get yoga, I think, on the NHS and a, and a whole bunch of other sort of complementary um uh treatment so no it's it's, it's great it's definitely happening but it, you're right it's, it's sort of slow um listen w we've been chatting for a while i could chat to you for so oh, much I longer know, honestly i i love it i love your enthusiasm for food oh. um this is sort of uh slightly out of the norm for the for the pod yeah but equally yeah. as important i think Thank because you, you know we, otherwise we'd just be talking about like research and nutrition but your book really puts a lot of what we talk about into practice with you know the incredible mix diversity of food i've got this thing um uh the uh uh sweet and sour leeks that's oh, yes. on my list uh, yeah oh, yeah and you. there's a batata uh hara chili dressed potatoes these these are definitely on my on my list you know what? it's so easy <laughs> they're so easy and that's the thing with that book like they're just recipes that are vegan i'm not trying to make them vegan I'm not using like, and there's, that's cool. There's a time and a place and there are some fantastic chefs and bloggers doing that, but 
these are just celebrating recipes that are vegan and I think you know it was it's so cool you know you having me on here has been such you know such a privilege and such an honor because obviously you are it is more medical stuff but I think in terms of diet and health it, it has been really interesting to write and relevant so thank you Definitely. No, no. And I, I love that. It's, you know, vegan and plant-based dishes that are, have always been vegan yeah. and plant-based. You're not are. like converting it. No. It's not like, you know, there's a big uh, yeah. meat skewer that yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. come with like <laughs> tempeh yeah. or something. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. That's Thank oh. you so much. Thanks, Honestly, Ruby. it's been such a pleasure, Georgie. Oh, wonderful. It was awesome. Oh. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast with Georgina. She is epic. You can find the links to all of her books and all the other wonderful stuff that she does on the doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast page. And whilst you're there, you can sign up for the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter every week where I send you a recipe to cook, some mindfully curated media to help you have a healthier, happier week and a joke to put a smile on your face. I'll see you here next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.